This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Before starting school full-time as a kid, I was lucky enough to get to spend a lot of time with my mom. She worked and had her own cleaning business, which allowed us as kids to go to work with her when other kids our age may be stuck with a sitter or at daycare while my mom was at work. We kind of had a hybrid situation of a stay-at-home mom and a working mom. Just the stay-at-home part included us spending the day at other people's homes while my mom was cleaning for them. There were no iPads for us, but there were TVs, and plopping in front of them as kids back then was probably a lot safer than today with all the rabbit holes of cable TV, YouTube, Netflix, or any other streaming device which, uh, without parental controls. For us, the TV sitter while mom was in the other room doing the linens was limited to just the basic channels. NBC, ABC, CBS, and sometimes PBS. But we basically could choose between reruns, soap operas, or game shows, at least until Sesame Street came on around noon. So game show watching was a pretty regular part of my childhood. I watched a ton of Price is Right, learned it was good to bid either $1 or a dollar above the other highest bidder, spin the wheel with force, and of course, make sure to spay or neuter your pet. And I'm pretty convinced time watching The Price is Right in those formative years helped me prep to live on a tight budget for years on the mission field and maybe even land a job teaching personal financial literacy for teenagers when we move back to the U.S. and enter the public school classrooms. But there's an iconic phrase that has emerged and stuck from the world of game shows. The phrase is, what's behind door number one or door number two or door number three? When the host would offer the contestant a chance to win a big prize shrouded behind one of three doors on stage, and they had to pick the door before getting a glimpse of what was behind. I'm pretty sure this might be where anxiety became a public public issue in our world, at least for unsuspecting kids like me plopped in front of TVs before starting kindergarten. All the pressure of which door you're going to pick. The choice was challenging. Everything seemed to weigh on it, making a blind choice based upon nothing more than your gut feeling. Oh, if you could only get a peek or a glimpse of what was behind the door. Had some intel from one of the producers or friends backstage. Something to give you some direction on which choice to make. Before making the fateful choice of door number one or was it door number two? No, wait, could it be door number three? We could all benefit at times from getting a glimpse of the unknown. A sneak peek, a preview, a little hint. Something to guide us before what is to come. In this podcast, we are in the section of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus gives the disciples and us a glimpse, a powerful one, to put it all into perspective. So let's take a look behind door number one as we pick up in the Gospel of Mark, moving into chapter 9. At Caesarea Philippi, Jesus spoke clearly and plainly to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Though they did not realize all the implications of it, they had come to the right conclusion. Jesus was the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. But what they did not fully understand was what that actually meant, that the Messiah came the first time as a suffering servant to pay for the sins of man, the nation of Israel and the nations, and to come a second time in glory, the mighty King that all were expecting. But Jesus wants them to be sober about their confession, that he was the Christ. We saw this at the end of chapter 8. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the Father of his glory with the holy angels. Jesus wants to be clear at this point, as they round the corner to make the final lap toward Jerusalem, where the crucifixion will take place. And Jesus wants to give them a glimpse of how what they believe and do now will have implications in the future. That with the knowledge and understanding of these things, there would be an impact. That this was not just a, well, that's nice type of response to move on to the next interesting morsel of information or, or news flippantly. No, instead to glimpse the weight of who Jesus was and why Jesus came. It would and should change everything. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What we do with Jesus and the gospel is everything. We can't just move on and keep going, being consumed with life, this world, or have an attitude of, I'll get to this later. Jesus challenges them all to glimpse down the road, to consider the end of the story, and to keep that in mind as they respond. The implications were that ignoring the gospel and him, him as Savior would mean losing everything, all we have worked for or think we have accomplished in light of eternity. The potential of thinking we are heading in the right direction, gaining the whole world, and yet at the end having it all be in vain, as we have missed the mark completely. Not glimpsing down the road can lead us to the wrong destination. Aaron and I just put some miles on during a road trip through a few states, headed to spend time with some family for the holidays. Driving through New Mexico, where we would stop for the night, I saw a turnoff that reminded me of a story. I knew some girls in college who had headed to New Mexico for a college event. They were there for a week or so, a bunch of students from Hawaii in the high plains of the U.S. Off the confines of the Pacific Island they, they knew as home, so much to explore in the high deserts of the mainland and explored they did even took a day to hit the slopes and try their hands or their feet at snowboarding replacing their wax boards of the islands for their icy counterpart parts on the snow-capped hilltops but one thing the ladies were excited for was when driving on the highways and byways around albuquerque new mexico they saw signs for las vegas what a treat to be able to drive to all the excitement of the famous strip the so-called eighth island for many of hawaii they thought so they set out one evening, got all dressed up, ready to hit the town. They drove the distance, following signs along the road to Las Vegas. They enjoyed the drive, excited for all that they would do and see when they got to Las Vegas. They took the off-ramp to Las Vegas and were a bit confused. It was sort of the middle of nowhere. Not big lights and big signs that they would expect to greet them on arrival. Nothing neon going on, pointing the way to the casinos and shows and the other enticements of the Strip. So they stopped at a gas station, heading into the convenience store to ask for help. Greeting the guy behind the counter, they asked him, Excuse us, can you tell us how to get to the Strip, the famous Las Vegas Strip? The worker was a bit confused, so they pressed a bit more. You know, the Strip, the casinos, the shows, all that Las Vegas is known for. The guy at the counter relayed the news. This is Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Nevada. 
sheepishly, the girls from the islands headed back to Albuquerque to brush up on their geography rather than for an exciting night on the town. You see, not every Las Vegas is the Las Vegas. In fact, for the girls from the islands, the Las Vegas they were seeking was over 700 miles away. Las Vegas, New Mexico, not having made the same investment to become a tourist destination as Las Vegas, Nevada. But as sincere as they were, it did not lead them in the right direction. They ended up in the wrong place, the wrong town, so close, but so far, and completely off the mark. Seeking after God is not about sincerity. There are many religious people around the world, different faiths, different philosophies, different perspectives, but oh so devoted. God has to honor that, right? Well, not exactly. It would do us well to take a glimpse at the finish line before embarking on those journeys. Not researching the destination can lead you astray. You might think you are headed to the right goal, but show up, and it's not right. It's the wrong Las Vegas. Many faiths might seem good and moral, maybe even right, but when man is seeking to establish his own righteousness rather than receiving the imputed righteousness that Jesus accomplished for us, well, it leads to a dead end. Paul observed this with Israel as he wrote in Romans 8, verses 1 through 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And when we seek to establish our own righteousness and we don't submit to that which God has gifted to us, the implications are great. We can't just claim, well, it's all the same. If we get a true glimpse of the end of that trail, we will hear a disappointed declaration, I never knew you. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How many would change their direction if they caught a glimpse of the end of the road? In our on-demand world, there are many people who are not thinking a lot about the future, not thinking what's down the road, whether that be in our daily choices, our commitments, the little compromises of today, which can be the sins of bondage of tomorrow, the love of money and materialism today that can pierce us through with many sorrows tomorrow, the sown thoughts today that can reap in action tomorrow, the bad or misled theology today that can lead to eternal separation from God in the future, Without taking time to glimpse down the road to see what is behind door number one or door number two or door number three before making that choice, many will be sorely disappointed or surprised. That's why Jesus wants to make it clear at the end of chapter 8 in Mark, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? God is good to give us glimpses of what lies ahead throughout Scripture. There were prophecies of the Christ's first coming, born of a virgin, which tribe he'd be from, how he would live and be betrayed and die and resurrect. At least 300 prophecies about his first coming alone. Glimpses of that blessed incarnation come to save mankind. And God has given us glimpses of the future as well, his second coming, what the state of the world will be the widespread deceptions that will accompany those days, the battle between good and evil playing out on the world stage of a beast and marks and seals and trumpets, glimpses of Christ being revealed, so no one should be caught off guard. But ignoring the glimpses, 
many will be caught off guard. Now, the weight of what Jesus had shared at the end of chapter 8, that though he was the Messiah, they did not yet understand that he would be betrayed and die, but raise again. And to try and help them see that in spite of the disappointing news about his demise in Jerusalem, all that would play into God's perfect plan of salvation in spite of man's sin and rejection of him, Jesus gives them a glimpse of something more, something eternal, a glimpse of power and hope and confirmation that though Jesus would soon die a humble death, something that really threw them because it bucked against their expectations expectations of an all-powerful Messiah who would, who would kick the Romans and oppressors out of town, that despite that coming temporary disappointment, God would and could and was able to fulfill the great and glorious plan of revealing himself as the glorious king of all. So in chapter 9, Jesus gives this impactful glimpse of himself in glory. So on the heels of the disappointing news, at least in their minds at that point in time, of the coming crucifixion in Jerusalem, Jesus reveals ever so briefly a glimpse of what was waiting behind door number one. We read in Mark 9, verses 1 through 3. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. For almost a week, the disciples are curious and expectant. Some there would not die before they'd see the kingdom of God present with power. Did this mean that some of them would see Jesus come into Jerusalem to reign and to rule? Would their expectations of a conquering Messiah be realized in their lifetime? Well, not exactly. Jesus had laid aside his glory when he came to this earth as a suffering servant. But a handful would get a glimpse of that glory in a way that would spur them on for what was to come to keep them motivated in the ministry they were being called to by letting them see through a peephole, per se, that Jesus was the Messiah and was truly glorious. Peter, James, and John, they ascend up a high mountain, Mount Hermon most likely. It's near the area where we saw Jesus ask them, Who do you say that I am? Just up from Caesarea Philippi, this was a trek. There were probably no winding mountain roads to drive up, no gondolas, probably not even a well-marked trail. But heading up this raw mountain, apart from everything and everyone, what they saw was not for all eyes, but a select audience, what is known as the Transfiguration. I love that Peter is part of this group that goes up the mountain. He had just tried to rebuke the Lord, the Lord declaring, Get behind me, Satan. Peter, well-meaning, but thinking with the mind of man rather than the mind of God, mistakenly telling Jesus he could avoid the cross and still accomplish the Father's will. Yet six days later, Jesus invites him up the mountain to be a witness of this glorious moment. What a picture of extending grace to and having grace for others. There is no waiting period that Jesus places on Peter before letting him back into his graces. No time spent in the doghouse before letting him be a part again of key moments of ministry. Peter's rebuke of Jesus was not a blatant sin that required a season of restoration. It was a momentary blunder, a response without thinking, a foolish utterance that he couldn't take back, though he may have wished it. And Jesus moves on, not from Peter, but with Peter. This mountaintop revelation is partly to grow Peter and give him a better understanding of who Jesus was and what it really meant to be the Messiah. People need grace as they grow. 
We don't have it all together all the time, and we need grace in discipleship, in marriage, in ministry. We can all use a lot of grace. Just like Jesus extends to Peter here by inviting him up on Mount Hermon to see this transfiguration. Mark's gospel was most likely taken as an account from Peter's experience. Mark working with Peter years later and writing what Peter shared down the world, uh, down uh, what Peter shared, he wrote it down for the world to read. And Peter describes this transfiguration, a glimpse of Jesus's glory. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. It was Jesus, but it was not Jesus. He shone in this brilliance, a radiance. Everything was so white, shining, blinding, pure, holy. If you've ever been out on a white sand beach in the bright sun and it's almost blinding, or on snow-covered hills or fields or slopes with sun beating down through a clear blue sky, the kind of sight where you have to squint, the brightness is too overwhelming. Peter, James, and John had no polarized glasses, no Ray-Bans or Maui gyms to help them in this scene. It was bright, bright, but it was Jesus nonetheless. He did not depart. He was not replaced. The word transfigured here is metamorpho. It describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. It's not like a costume or masquerade, like someone putting on a costume for to go on stage or to go door-to-door asking for candy, those would be an outward change that does not come from within. It's not as if a bright light just shined on Jesus, some spotlight from heaven like he was on center stage. This wasn't a light coming on Jesus from the outside. For this brief window, Jesus temporarily put a pause of an ongoing miracle in which he had been constraining his glory. Jesus had been keeping man from seeing his glory most of the time, as he was born in a stable, as he walked along the dusty paths of Israel, as he slept in boats during storms, as he sparred with the religious leaders, as he challenged and taught his disciples. So in this moment, when he let his glory shine, it was taking off the restraining bolt that allowed him to walk so, quote, normally in his human existence. A key part of his first coming, as the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Spurgeon writes of this moment on the mountain as Jesus shines wider than anything else. For Christ to be glorious was almost a less matter than for him to restrain or hide his glory. It is forever his glory that he concealed his glory, and that, though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. So for this brief moment, Peter, James, and John got to see Jesus in his true colors. So while they may have been dealing with discouragement and having been told Jesus was the Messiah, but not in the way that they anticipated, they would see something better, something more glorious than a political king who had an earthly kingdom in mind. Though at this point in life and ministry, they would not see any overthrows of corrupt government or religious systems, they would begin to understand the fullness of who God was and that this that his kingdom truly would have no end, because Jesus the Christ was not just an anointed man, but Jesus was God. This was a glimpse, a sneak peek, and one that would be pivotal for them, maybe not now in the immediate, but for sure as the baton of earthly ministry would soon be passed to them upon Jesus' return to glory. Well, bright white linens are not all that these men observed. Take a look at verses 4 through 8. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. 
And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. What a trip for these men from Galilee up on this high mountain, Jesus in his glory, and Elijah and Moses. When you're a kid, you might have heroes. I thought Superman was the greatest. I was him for one year for Halloween, had the cape and all, even bought that cheap black hairspray to spray my blonde hair that I had as a kid back to black to look more like the iconic superhero. But kids have heroes, those they look up to, have heard so much about, would love to become like. For these Jewish boys, men like Moses and Elijah would have been those heroes. So these guys are fanboying right now. It's Jesus and Moses and Elijah, all their heroes right there in front of them. Moses was a hero of the nation, having been used by God to deliver them, entrusted with the law, written on the tablets, having met with God atop a similar mountain to receive the law. Elijah was a prophet, a great and mighty one, stood up to the corruption of his day and age, mighty in word, attested to with miracles that could only have come from the hand of God. And the disciples are watching this meeting going on. Peter wants it to go on forever. Let's stay here, he says. Never mind the other nine disciples in the crowds waiting down below the mountaintop. This is awesome. Let's just hole up here on the mountain. We'll make you guys tabernacles, places to stay, and we can keep on with this. You've probably had moments like that, where everything seems just right. Oh, I wish we could just stay like this forever, freeze this moment in place. Everything seems to be dialed in just right for the moment. Let's not mess with it. Not going to happen, Peter. This glimpse was more than just a cool opportunity for these disciples. Some interesting thoughts behind these two appearing to Jesus on the mountain, these two specifically, Moses and Elijah. Moses is a representative of the law. Having been the one to whom God relayed the law after the nation departed from Egypt and set out for this very promised land where they stood, a law that pointed to man's need for a savior to come. And Elijah represented the prophets, major and minor in the Old Testament, who spoke of the Messiah to come. The Old Testament revelation of Jesus found in the law and the prophets, now representatives of both coming to meet with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration maybe to discuss the coming plan in which all the law and all the prophets would be fulfilled in the cross of Jesus and the subsequent resurrection, to plan out in light of man's plans how God's plan would prevail, to go over the calendar, the details, a final planning meeting in which thousands of years of revelation in the law and the prophets might come to fruition in Jesus' obedience to go to the cross, to be buried, and to rise again. It's amazing as a Christian to look back at the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets, and to see that God gave us glimpses of Jesus all along. When I was first a Christian, I did not get all those connections. The Old Testament, well, it had interesting stories, great people of faith who believed in God. But the connection to the new did not make a whole lot of sense. And then when I got to Bible college, having to listen to what we called Chuck tapes, it fulfilled our Old Testament and New Testament survey credits. You listened to recordings from Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, as he went line by line, verse by verse through the scriptures. I started in the Old Testament, and I think it was six tapes a week for the entire school year. Some of those were long tapes, like 90 minutes, 110 minutes. I think one was a whole two hours. Well, we listened to them on double speed, bought special Walkman that had that function in order to get through them a bit faster. But it was so rich, 
as we just crawled through the scriptures to see all the places Jesus showed up between the lines. How many things in the Old Testament were types of Jesus that would be fulfilled in Jesus? Parallels in the stories, in the laws, in the sacrifices, in the events, even in the furniture that was in the tabernacle. Jesus showing up on almost every page in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. It was mind-blowing. Almost made you want to keep listening to the next tape to see where he'd show up next. Like when you binge a show, you're streaming, and you just need a bit more so you can try and see how it all plays out. How amazing the plan of God a plan to send us a Savior all along, and God gave glimpses all throughout the Old Testament of what Jesus would come and do. Not only are Moses and Elijah representing the Law and the Prophets, both Elijah and Moses represent those who are caught up to God, each representing two groups. Moses represents those who die and go to glory, as many a believer does. And Elijah represents those who are caught up to heaven without dying, a chariot of fire appearing, caught up in a whirlwind taken to heaven, and many will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air one day, we're told in the New Testament. Some also see that Moses and Elijah's presence on the Mount of Transfiguration also ties together in the future fulfillment of prophecy, when Jesus does come in his second coming to reign and to rule. The book of Revelation speaks of two witnesses in Jerusalem prior to the Lord's second coming, and many think Elijah and Moses could be the two witnesses of Revelation 11 verses 3 through 13. Some of the miracles they do, like turning the water into blood, as God did through Moses in Exodus, and calling down fire from heaven, as God did through Elijah during his ministry. Some of the traits of the account in Revelation of the two witnesses sound parallel to things that Moses and Elijah might have been a part of. Could this have been a strategy session for mapping out the whole revelation, the first and the second coming, first as the suffering servant, then as the mighty king? Aaron and I watched a streaming series recently, and Aaron, well, she just loved it. It was a prequel to The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's classic. It tells the story before the films that were made some 20 years ago. A lot went into these episodes, the most expensive series ever made, some $1 billion for the first season alone. And Aaron really got into them, the classic battle between good and evil, light and dark. So we were reading up a bit on them. And the guys who are behind these, this series, they were telling their story, and they were up against some pretty heavy hitters to get the gig with Amazon to be able to do a Lord of the Rings TV series. And they talked about how they mapped out the whole thing, five seasons. They wanted to lay out the whole thing beginning to end so they would know straight off how it all ties together, and that could be a part of their pitch. The story arc of each character, no loose ends. And it was part of their pitch to Amazon to give them the whole story up front so that as it is unveiled, it will be seamless. No having to try and backtrack and make things fit. Everything storyboarded on the front end. I wonder if that is what is happening with Moses and Elijah there on the mountain, not just going over the first coming, but the second coming as well. These two potentially being the two witnesses in Revelation 13 who will be there at the end as well. What all did the Lord have intended with this glimpse? Maybe we'll never fully know what the Mount of Transfiguration was all about, but the Lord does. He knows the end from the beginning. How comforting to know that the Lord has a plan moving forward, that He knows what is to come. Nothing surprises Him. There's nothing He is unprepared for. He's already glimpsed into what is behind door number one and door number two and door number three, and He is ready for all of it. In fact, even in seeing Moses and Elijah, the disciples present there saw evidence of a life beyond this earthly existence. Think of it, Moses had died from this world 1,400 years before this event on Mount Hermon. 
Elijah's earthly ministry had about taken a place about 900 years before. But who do we, they, they see both of them alive and well in glory right before them. There was life after life. And these two gave them a glimpse of that. This was important because Jesus had just revealed in chapter eight that he would be betrayed, rejected, and crucified, but that on the third day he would rise again. He was claiming a resurrection, and by sharing this glimpse of Moses and Elijah living on, perhaps it gave them confidence in Jesus' claim to resurrection. Again, bringing some sobriety to the statement Jesus had just made, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What are we living for? Are we living as if there is an eternity? Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in his second epistle. Now they were a carnal church, living often for the here and now, just living for this world at times rather than for the things of God. It was a real struggle for them. And Paul challenged them in this, and he wrote to them, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When people have a brush with eternity, it can often change the way that they live, shakes them up a bit, whether that be a brush with death or a potential diagnosis that reminds them of their mortality or something shaking that reminds them of how temporal this earthly existence is. Being reminded of eternity can be a very good thing. Peter, James, and John see in this moment of transfiguration and that Moses and Elijah attend that there is a life beyond this life. And understanding that made all the impact. Then Peter, it says, answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Peter offers to build three tabernacles because he did not know what to say. It says they were afraid. This was not your typical day of ministry. And Peter feels the need to say something, as he often did, but maybe he didn't need to. But the Father speaks up. A cloud comes, overshadows the whole scene. The voice making the statement that needs to be heard above all in the scene. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly everything else and everything, everyone else is gone just like that. Sort of a, did that just happen? Did, did you see what I saw kind of moment? The father declaring above all that Jesus is his beloved son and they should hear him. Maybe Peter, James, and John were a bit confused, wanting to build three tabernacles, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, maybe thinking the three were somehow equal. But Jesus is greater, greater than all and they would listen to, obey, and submit to him. Sometimes we would be wise to heed this as well. With all the voices, all the influences, all the impressions swirling around us, God has sent us his beloved Son, and we are to hear him above all else, to, his, to hear his voice above the others, to see his glory above all the others, to obey him above all other influences, to hear him. How are we doing with this? Are we making time to hear him? Even on this mountain, there were potential distractions, maybe a tabernacle building project to take part in. Sure, well-meaning, but was it helpful in them hearing Jesus? We can be so easily distracted by doing and by busyness. And sometimes our greatest need 
is to hear him. It's almost like in that scene with all that was going on, the disciples started getting lost. So the father stopped it, just gave them a glimpse, and then brought them back to simplicity. Hear him. That's all you need to do right now. So he removed every other distraction and said, just hear him. Talk about being swept back into reality real quick. It's like snap, and this was all over. Just the three disciples, Jesus, and this rocky mountaintop, all as it had been prior to this. A sort of pinch me, was that for real moment? So Jesus takes the opportunity to debrief as they start making their way down the hill. Mark 9, verses 9 through 13. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. There were a number of question marks following this as they went down the hill. One pivoted off the fact that they had seen Elijah up on the mountain. They asked, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They're trying to piece this all together. Since they had just seen Elijah up there, was this a sign that Jesus would be taking the throne soon? Was Jesus mistaken that a death had to take place? Should the kingdom get the green light with Jesus at the helm since Elijah had just made an appearance? Or we read there again, Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. The prophecies had a first coming and a second coming. They had a near and a far fulfillment. In the near, John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah. And they did to him whatever they wished, rejected him. But John had prepared the way for the Lord, just like it was written of Elijah. And Elijah will come again prior to the Lord's triumphal return at the end of the age. Sometimes the Lord gives us a glimpse of his plan. And he does not give us all the details. He withholds all that is more than necessary. But the glimpse is enough to see that he knows, even if we do not. And in that, well, we can rest. A child does not need to know the entire plan, the entire itinerary. You put the child in the car and give them enough info. Get your suit on, we're going to the pool or we're going to the beach and take a change of clothes for after. That's all they need to know. Letting the parents deal with all the intricate details. How we can rest in the glimpses the Lord gives us. Just enough to take the steps of faith that we need to. But he's got the rest. But one of the biggest takeaways as they go down the hill, it says here, He commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen, till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. This was not to go public until after the resurrection, though even in this moment they weren't too sure what that actually meant, the resurrection, which to me indicates that this was something for them. A glimpse for them because things were going to get hard for them. There'd be many challenges as they stood for Christ, something that they will not do very well at first. Think of Peter, denying the Lord three times, though he said that he never would. But this truth, the fact that Jesus told them beforehand and gave them a glimpse that he knew the future, 
This would be able to propel them forward and keep them tethered and anchored when things would get challenging. Peter did catch a glimpse as one of the three in this scene, and it impacted him from there on out. He was never the same. He wrote about it later in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, referring to this very scene on the mountain. It says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This glimpse gave Peter the traction that he needed to keep moving forward, because the journey would grow hard, but he had seen just enough to press on. Many a person of faith in scriptures was given a glimpse. Jacob and the latter while fleeing his home, seeing angels ascending and descending and the Lord at the top, and the promise that he would be with him until he had returned to that land. A glimpse glimpse to keep him going for the next 20 years. Moses saw a glimpse of the Lord's glory on the mountain, the glory of the Lord though he put him in the cleft of the rock until he passed by, when the miracles and the mighty things like the burning bush or the ten plagues or the parting of the sea, Moses saw glimpses that gave him the traction that he needed to keep going. Elisha the prophet, who prayed that the eyes of the servants were open to the heavenly realm to see the armies of heaven, a glimpse to put it all in perspective, that the Lord was in charge of the fight and he just needed to do his part. Where have you had a glimpse of the Lord? Maybe not as dramatic, but the Lord has shown you something that encouraged, inspired, and strengthened you. A verse, a circumstance, a word, a vision, a season of life where God kept showing up and you knew his calling or direction or directive or perspective. The glimpse was meant to give you the traction to do now what you are to do next. We don't look for glimpses like an Easter egg hunt. That's one day a year. We don't prep out baskets all the time, go around looking every moment. Oh, I wonder if the eggs are out today. Some get caught up in looking so hard that they miss the obvious. No longer taking the word, the Lord at his word, but looking for some special revelation or some feeling or experience to tell them what is right. We may not always get to see things like the transfiguration to motivate us, but God is good to give us glimpses daily into the kingdom into his nature, into his power. These are grounded and founded in his word. And that is the primary way that we will catch glimpses of him, which is why we need to stay close and not stray far. Because though the three in the mountains saw great things, it was the word of the Lord to them that gave them the next step they were to take. This is my beloved son. Obey him. So Lord, we ask that you would still us long enough to catch a glimpse of you, Invite us into places and circumstances for a fresh revelation of who you are. Reveal to us all that we need to know to follow you, to obey you, and to to step into what it is that you have for us. Wherever you are, Lord, we want to be near. Lord, set our feet on straight paths. Give us wisdom and discernment not to be deceived, and that we would consider the end of our ways. Give us a glimpse of where we're headed, and correct us if need be so we might stay on the straight and narrow more concerned with pleasing you than with gaining the whole world at the expense of our souls. We praise you, Jesus, that you are the Savior of the world, that you did obey the voice of the Father in going to the cross, the perfect sinless sacrifice. Paying for the sins of all mankind, applied to the lives of those who believe by grace through faith. Jesus, you are the King of glory, and it's you that we worship. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.